Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we might get started, um, given we're a couple of minutes late. Um, my name's Shane Houston. I'm Deputy Vice-Chancellor at the University of Sydney, and I'd like to welcome you to the University, and particularly welcome you to the University during Reconciliation Week. Um, we're here to talk about an important topic, the broad question of constitutional recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in our national constitution. Um, we have a fine group of panellists, people that, given their head, will talk for hours and entertain us. Um, I'm told that Anne does a mean, soft shoe. Tom sings particularly well. And Sarah has been taking yodelling lessons. So if we encourage them carefully, they might, at the end of their presentations, give us a demonstration. But... Uh, before, we, before we kick off, I'd like to introduce Donna Ingram and Donna is going to do the Welcome to Country for us. Thank you, Donna. Thank you, Shane. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's my great pleasure to be here with permission from my elders to offer you Welcome to Country for the New South Wales Reconciliation Council's Constitutional Recognition Lecture. A traditional Welcome to Country offers a visitor permission to be on the land but more importantly offers a visitor protection whilst on the land. It gives me pride to represent my community and the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council in this important Aboriginal protocol. It shows recognition to the unique position of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australian culture and history. The land we are meeting on this evening is the land of the Gadigal, who were one of 29 clans of the Eora Nation, which is bordered by the Hawkesbury, the Georges and the Nepean Rivers. I'm an Aboriginal woman who proudly identifies with the Wiradjuri Nation through my family connections from a town called Cowra in central west New South Wales. I was born on Gadigal land and I've had the privilege to live, work and raise my four children on this land for most of my life. I acknowledge the Gadigal whose spirits and ancestors will always remain with the land Mother Earth and thank them for their ongoing custodianship and for allowing us to gather here this evening for this important discussion. I'm also very proud to be part of the oldest living culture in the world, the Aboriginal culture of Australia, with our unique and distinct heritage, cultures and identity. I pay my respects to Aboriginal elders, both past and present, and those who are here tonight, and realise the sacrifices made by our leaders to create a better future for Aboriginal people. I do this as a reminder and as a tribute to elders and those who have gone before us to fight for land rights, justice and equity for our people. I extend my respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from all clans and nations who are present this evening. In the spirit of reconciliation, I also recognise our non-Aboriginal sisters and brothers who walk beside us to improve relationships between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and the broader Australian community and contribute positively to Australian society. I now offer you a warm and sincere welcome to the land of the Gadigal of the Eora Nation and wish you a safe stay on the land and safe travels from the land. On behalf of Metropolitan Land Council, I wish you a successful and productive lecture with great speakers and important opportunities to hear and have your say about the need to recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the Australian Constitution. In closing, it should always be remembered that this is, was and always will be Aboriginal land. Thank you. Have a great evening.
Thank you very much, Donna. Um, I just want to very quickly run through just a bit of um, housekeeping for people who don't know. The loser downstairs, two floors down, and go that way. It's all underground. Um, tonight is also being recorded um, both on video and audio. Um, um, APAC, the Australian Public Affairs Channel, is recording it um, for broader uh, for broader consumption, and the um, audio will be used as a podcast in the university, as all of our Sydney lecture, uh, Sydney Ideas lectures are, to try and stimulate some discussion, to get people talking and thinking about the different perspectives that are pl uh, put on the table um, here tonight. Um, now, we, as I said, we have three terrific speakers tonight. And it's really important, I think, for us to, to, to have a discussion about constitutional recognition. You know, this university was established on the notion that everyone should have the chance to come to higher education and by virtue of that fact, be engaged in the discussions that occur in institutions like that and that help inform the sort of things our society does. So it's only proper that tonight we would have a conversation about constitutional recognition. You know, diversity might not have been the flavour of the day in the late 1800s when people were talking about federation, but it was an interesting set of circumstances. And as I was thinking about tonight, I was reminded about two really interesting facts. You know, here we are at the university talking about constitutional recognition. We're engaging with people in an audience, and there are many audiences around the country talking about constitutional recognition. But compare that to the time that Australia's constitution was written. You know, in 1891, when Sir Samuel Griffith posed a line of argument that would exclude the Commonwealth from making laws in respect of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this country, there was zero debate. Zero debate. You know, in 1897, at that convention, there were less than 195 words spoken by only five speakers on whether Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people should be included in the census. It seemed to me our constitution, in respect of Aboriginal people, was not founded in healthy debate. So tonight, at this point in our career, and this point as a nation, in this journey as a nation, it's appropriate that we start to engage people in a conversation about those questions. So our first speaker uh, tonight is Anne Toomey. Now, um, many would know Anne from her various comments in the press and in the media, um, but Anne is a professor of constitutional law here at the University of Sydney in our law school in this magnificent building. She has previously worked for the High Court of Australia, the Commonwealth Parliamentary Research Service, the Senate Legal and Constitutional Committee and the Cabinet Office of New South Wales. She has written extensively about the State and Commonwealth Constitutions and is Director of the Constitutional Reform Unit at the Sydney Law School. Will you please join me in welcoming Anne Toomey. Thank you very much uh, for inviting me today and welcoming me here today. Uh, and I'd like to fulfil uh, the mission that Shane points out, which is to start conversation, perhaps be a little bit provocative. Um, that will hope you keep, hopefully keep you awake. Uh, but I will start with one little plug for our constitutional reform unit. Um, our aim when we set up the unit was to be able to provide the public with the um, objective uh, information uh, and rigorous analysis that people need to be able to make a genuine decision when it comes to referenda. 
So we hope to do that in relation to um, Indigenous recognition in the Constitution. Um, at the moment we're doing that in relation to local government recognition. So if any of you here, knowing that you will have to vote in a referendum on that in September, want more information about that, go to the Constitutional Reform Unit's website, um, which is, you can get through through the law school, and we've got a special page on local government recognition um, which will help you make your own decision. We're not pushing any views, yes or no. What we want to do is make, um, give people the information they need to make uh, a genuine decision. Uh, my role here tonight is to talk about the recommendations that the expert panel made about constitutional recognition, to explain what they are, and to give you um, some views about uh, how they might be further developed and improved. Uh, so I take it from the point that the, the expert panel did an absolutely terrific job uh, in fulfilling its main missions, which were A, to consult, particularly with Aboriginal people, but also with the rest of the community, and B, to um, distill into words the various ideas and propositions involved in constitutional recognition. Uh, but from my point of view, that's, that's the beginning. Once you've got the first draft of words, once you've um, distilled all those amorphous ideas into words, that's the point at which you need to start analysing and criticising those words uh, and getting together as a community to help develop them to the point where people feel fully satisfied with them. Because particularly about changing the constitution, what is most important is that we get it right for the long term because anything you put in the constitution may well be there for 100 years. Um, and we can see that today in things that we have in our constitution now which you know, we shudder about uh, when they were enacted you know, 100 years ago, they seem perfectly reasonable. So let me talk about the recommendations the expert panel made. The first one is the repeal of section 25. Now that is one of those provisions that in its day seemed reasonable and now we do shudder about it. Uh, it's a provision that says that if a state prohibited people on the basis of race from voting, then the representation of that state is accordingly diminished at the Commonwealth level. Now, on its face, people say, well, look, this is a racist provision. We should get rid of it because it contemplates the fact that a state might prohibit people from voting on the basis of race. But the other side of the provision is where we got it from, and that was from the 14th Amendment to the US Constitution. The actual point of the provision was to discourage uh, discrimination in voting on the basis of race. It was actually intended as protection for freed slaves in the United States. So it actually had a anti-discriminatory purpose when it was first enacted, but um, now would be regarded as being discriminatory because it contemplates the notion of racial discrimination. So the removal of it, I think, is something that everybody can accept, but what we have to also understand is that the context of it is different in different eras. Um, that leads us on to the second provision that the expert panel suggests that we should repeal, and that's section 5126. Um, now, that one clearly was intended to be racist. There's no sugarcoating that one at all. Um, it's a provision that allows the Commonwealth to make special laws with respect to the people of any race. Uh, and it was intended to make discriminatory types of laws, particularly in relation to Chinese people in Australia, um, people from Asian countries. It wasn't directed at Aboriginal people. Aboriginal people were excluded from it. Um, so it was a provision that permitted discrimination. 
Now, as you know, it was changed in 1967 and it was changed to allow the Commonwealth to make laws with respect to Aboriginal people too, as a race. Um, and that allowed the Commonwealth to make laws that were to the advantage and benefit of Aboriginal people. But it didn't change the words to the extent that you can also make laws that are to detriment as well. And it didn't change the fact that the provision is one that concerns race. And it allows the Commonwealth Parliament to legislate with respect to a race of people by virtue of their race. So if what we're trying to do and if what we want to do is to take race out of the Constitution, that's very much an appropriate provision to remove and that's what the expert panel recommended. But that's when we get to the tricky point. I think most people in the country would happily remove section 25 and remove section 5126. But the tricky question is, well, what do you replace it with? Because if you put in a power, sorry, if you take out the power to make laws with respect to race, uh, does that then remove the Commonwealth's power to make laws with respect to native title and other things? So the expert panel recommended putting in a provision that allows the Commonwealth to make laws with respect to, um, the, uh, to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Okay, now that's, the problem with that provision is that its um, constitutional lawyers would describe it as a person's power. And what we mean by that is that there are many provisions in the Constitution that are about subject matters. Uh, but this one is one that deals with persons, just like the race power does, just like the aliens power does. Um, it's a power to make laws with respect to persons that fall within a particular category. And that sort of a power is described as a plenary power. It's a full power. It's a power to make any law whatsoever in relation to those persons. It could be a law that says, you know, every one of those persons has to have two eggs for breakfast. It could be anything. And so that, that there's real concern about having those sorts of powers in the Constitution. And there's particular concern amongst Aboriginal people as to how it might be used. Now, in order to temper that, the expert panel put into a preamble to that provision um, a statement that says, acknowledging the need to secure the advancement of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Now, the idea there was to... Um, make sure that in interpreting the scope of that incredibly broad provision that it might only be used for the advancement of Aboriginal peoples. Um, now that in itself has all sorts of troubles. A, we are uncertain as to whether a court would interpret that preamble as a limitation on the power. The, the authorities in existence potentially go either way. Um, so this is sort of like, you know, um, trying to kick a goal while you're blindfolded, not knowing exactly where the goalposts are. It, you're running a risk if you're doing this. Uh, the, the second problem is something that I only really finally latched on when I read um, the um, Cabinet Minutes from 1966, where a very similar proposal was um, proposed to be put into the Constitution, and that was a power to make laws with respect to the advancement of Aboriginal people. And Cabinet actually rejected that recommendation and one of the reasons was it, they said they didn't want Aboriginal people to be um, classed as second-class citizens. And what their concern was, putting in the Constitution something that says that Aboriginal people as a race need advancement is potentially going to lead people to say, and you can just imagine it, kids in the schoolyard, say, OK, if you as a race need advancement, that means the Constitution says you're backwards or there's something wrong with you or you're in some way deficient. 
Okay, now in saying that, that's provocative because the people who made this recommendation clearly aren't intending to put a racist statement in the Constitution and no one would suggest that. I respect very much the people who made these recommendations of the expert panel. But they're coming at it from an informed position. They're coming at it from context. They're using the word advancement in the context of a history of international treaties like the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination. They're using the term advancement in a context of um, the proud history in the United States of the, you know, the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People. They're using it in a context where it has a particular meaning now. But as a constitutional lawyer, what worries me is how are people going to read it without that context? How are people going to read it in 20 years' time, in 50 years' time, in 100 years' time when it's still in our constitution? Are they going to read it that way? And, you know, I hear in my head the voices of, you know, grandchildren saying, how could you be a party to putting something like that in the constitution that says something so dreadful about Aboriginal people? Okay, so my concern is about um, that preambular provision, about what it says if you divorce it from the context of the people who are recommending putting it in. Okay, and I think we need to think about that um, in, in terms of um, our, our coming debate. So let me put another proposition. How could we change this to avoid those problems? My suggestion is that instead we put in, instead of having a power in relation to persons, we should have a subject matter power. Now what we need to think about, and this also fits in with taking race out of the Constitution, one of the difficulties you'll have with explaining this referendum is to say, if we're taking race out of the Constitution, why are we putting in a provision that allows the Commonwealth to make laws with respect to the people of a particular race? That just doesn't gel, alright? better way of doing it is saying, what is it about Aboriginal people that make them special from a constitutional point of view? So what is it, what is it beyond race that makes Aboriginal people special? And the answer to that is it is because they were the people who were here first, who had the first set of government, who had the first laws before European settlement. And because of that, they had continuing rights. They had native title rights. They have connection to land and sacred sites and all those sorts of things. So instead what we should perhaps be looking at is putting in a power to make laws with respect to, say, native title, protecting Aboriginal um, culture and heritage. Now if we had laws, uh, a power to make laws with respect to those things and they were phrased in a positive way, such as you know, protecting and supporting um, Aboriginal culture and heritage, it's not about a law with respect to people of a race. It's a law with respect to certain subject matters. It can't be used to do ridiculous and offensive things potentially in the future. It's not a law allowing you to make power to, allowing you to make a law with respect to anything in relation to Aboriginal people. Um, and it's focused on those important things. Now some people will say, well, does that stop then? the ability of the Commonwealth to deal with other important Aboriginal issues, to deal with welfare issues and those sorts of things? And the answer is no. The Commonwealth already has powers to make laws with respect to welfare issues. It already has powers to make laws with respect to the representation of Aboriginal people through its external affairs power and um, the right to self-determination. 
Uh, it already has power to do most things in relation to Aboriginal people. It doesn't need a special race power to do that. So that's my provocative suggestion as to how we might improve um, the first draft of this. I think I'm getting very close to the end of my time, probably well past it. Let me just say the one other major thing that the um, referendum, uh, the expert panel proposed was a provision prohibiting racial discrimination. Now, the issue here is not about the substance of the proposal. The political question is about whether you're going to dilute support through that measure in relation to your other ones um, and whether you're going to potentially lose voters who would be in support of Aboriginal recognition in the Constitution but for completely other reasons don't want to constitutionalise rights in the Constitution. There are many people who are concerned about constitutionalising rights. We had that whole debate about the Bill of Rights. The question is, do you want to risk splitting them off from your vote? Uh, my recommendation in relation to that is at the very least, um, the best thing to do would be to have it in two separate questions uh, because many referenda proposals in Australia fail even when they're incredibly sensible and useful proposals when they get put in with something else that people oppose. I'll give you one example before I close. 1988, the Australian people voted against getting just terms compensation if their land was compulsorily taken by a state. Now, when I tell my students that, they're gobsmacked. They think, why would people not want to be compensated if the state takes your property? Why would people vote against that? And the answer is, it was put in with a whole lot of other provisions, some of which people objected to. Okay? So if there is potentially going to be a stoush about the racial discrimination provision, not because people want racial discrimination but because people don't want to constitutionalise rights, best split it off into a second question so that those people who would oppose that part but still support um, recognition of Aboriginal people in the Constitution would be prepared to vote for it. Anyway, I think I've well passed my time but thank you very much and I'll pass you on to the following speaker. Thank you very much, Anne, for a, a range of really quite provocative questions. I just wanted to mention also that at the end of tonight, on the way out through the um, law school um, lift lobby, there'll be a vox pop. So you'll be able to sit down and you'll be able to tell the cameras some of your thoughts after tonight's um, event. And I'd encourage you all to do that, only because I think it will also help us encourage debate about these important questions. And your presentation raised in my mind a really in interesting example. When I was working in, South, in Western Australia, I was taken by two old men to a site that they had been looking after for many, many years. It was an art site, uh, an overhang. And they were taught by their grandfathers to look after the site, to keep it fresh by touching it up. And the Western Australian Government passed some sites protection legislation in order to stop Aboriginal sites from being vandalised. But they were complaining that the Arts and Heritage Department had come out and were going to prosecute them for touching up the site that their grandfathers had taught them to touch up for six decades. Mm. So there's an interesting position around context and history and time that we need to think through in these interesting challenges. But it also raises the question about if we had a good constitution 100 years in Australia grew, would we be able to sit down and have a mature debate about the next step? Really interesting question. Thank you for that very much. Our next speaker tonight is Dr Tom Kalmer. Now, Many of you will know Tom's face and many of you will know Tom's work. 
He is an elder from the Kangarakan uh, and Iwaja people of the Northern Territory and he's been involved in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island affairs at a local, state, national and international level for many, many years. He's focused and contributed in areas in rural and remote Australia, in health, in education and economic development. He famously held the role as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commissioner and Race Discrimination Commissioner with the Australian Human Rights Commissioner, uh, Commission for a number of years. Um, he has also been a senior diplomat uh, for Australia in India and Vietnam and he currently serves as the co-chair of Reconciliation Australia and national <coughs> coordinator of tackling um, Indigenous smoking. Tom is a strong advocate for Aboriginal rights and empowerment and has spearheaded many initiatives across his career, including the National Congress for Australia's First People, the development of the inaugural Indigenous Suicide Prevention Strategy and Justice Reinvestment, as well as laying the groundwork for our national Closing the Gap campaign. In 2007, Dr Kalman was named as the Bulletin magazine, by the Bulletin magazine as the most influential Indigenous person in Australia and in 2008 he was named uh, GQ's magazine's 2008 Man of Inspiration for his work in Aboriginal Affairs. In 2010 he was awarded an honorary Doctorate of Letters from Charles Darwin University and in 2011 uh, an honorary Doctor of Science from Curtin University. And most recently he's going to be appointed Chancellor of Canberra University. Can you please welcome an eminent Australian? Thank you, Shane. And you know, you read that out, and then that puts a lot of pressure on <laughs> making sure you're able to deliver it. Something like this. Uh, thank you, Donna, for your your welcome to country, and um, and can I pass my respects on to the Gadigal people and recognise. Uh, them as well and also recognise all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander brothers and sisters here tonight from whatever you land you come from. Thank you Anne for really setting the scene about what the expert panel came up for and some thoughts on, on uh, constitutional reform but uh, imagine if you will the day a referendum to recognise the first Australian in our constitution. It's something we should recognise, we should imagine. From the saltwater country to our vast deserts, in tiny town halls and suburban gymnasiums, the people of Australia would be asked to come together um, in a powerful act of unity. It would be the day that we proclaim proudly to each other and to the world that we are inspired by our beginnings and joined in our destiny. It would be the day that we write the first chapter of Australia's history, our story in our founding document, officially included in it our shared story. It will be the day that Australian, uh, the Australian Constitution acknowledges a simple but important fact about our early history, that our people have been here for a long time. In my mind, those ballots being cast and counted would signal a new intent amongst everyday Australians, a new intent to live together in this land with mutual respect, a new intent to put behind us the divisions and the exclusions of our history, a new intent to find the best in each other and ourselves. That day is within our power as a people and I for one want to see it come sooner rather than later. I don't want to wait another decade or another generation with us living apart from each other in this country. 
because that lingering sense of separation erodes our potential and our confidence. It makes us less than what we can be and so we need to fix it. Now I don't want to have... Um, uh, I don't want to think that uh, we have time to spare because with each month or year that passes more and more of our old people, our Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander old people, pass away without being recognised for who and what, what they are, the first peoples of this land. And more of our young people grow up without the knowledge that our culture, their culture, is recognised as a source of pride for all Australians. Across all the generations, one thing is certain. The pride that comes with formal recognition in our constitution will help to keep our unique Indigenous cultures strong for future generations, black and white, so that all Australians can share in this rich heritage of ours. We have another important task before us too. It's the job of removing racial discrimination from our highest document so that future generations don't have to relive the exclusions of history. That means removing elements like Section 25 that Anne talked about, which still, yes, in 2013, says that the state can ban a whole race of peoples from voting. Shocking, isn't it? And so it is the re reality that this does not just apply to Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people, as, as Anne mentioned. Race in that context applies to any race within Australia. Removing those discriminatory elements will help us to turn a page in a new chapter based on values that we in Australia proclaim today. Forging a new unity between us is the right thing to do. As Lowitje O'Donoghue has put it, constitutional recognition of the first Australians would be good not only for our heads and hearts but also for the nation's soul. I agree. Constitutional recognition of the first Australians would unite our nation as never before. That new sense of unity would be an inspirational gift to future generations. But we can't do it without you and without millions of other Australians just like you. Your vote will count on referendum day, but that alone won't be enough. For us to get to, the, to that referendum day and to have the chance to forge a new accord, we need to make it all happen. We, the people, have to create this opportunity together. And we have to demonstrate to political leaders that the groundswell of popular support is there for them to commit a referendum confidently uh, to the ballot. Some may fear that such a referendum will never succeed. I don't think we can contemplate failure. But we know this is a once in a lifetime chance. A choice whether we spend another generation living apart from each other or whether we come together at long last. A choice whether we spend a whole uh, new generation of people who don't know about our future. There are some Aboriginal people who will say that it won't go far enough, that we need to have sovereignty. Some may argue that because it doesn't address treaty or sovereignty that this opportunity should not be pursued. But I think it's important not to underestimate the power of this moment in its own right. On Sunday we commemorated the 15th anniversary of National Sorry Day. It honours the stolen generations and the people's movement for an apology that some feared would never come. Well, the apology came 
and it has helped many survivors to heal. It has helped many Australians better understand our history, something that uh, we'd not learned about in school or since leaving school. It's also helped those forgotten Australians who were forgotten when they were brought over as orphans and placed into institutions in Australia. It's also brought about the apology to those women who have had their children forcibly removed um, uh, from them. These apologies are very important. And I believe that constitutional recognition will have a similar healing and educative power for even more Australians. It will make a lot of people feel included after a long history of exclusion. And that will help us to move forward together as a more unified nation. So I invite you as Australians of great heart to help us make this happen. Sign up to the People's Movement for Recognition at recognition.org.au. Join the journey of recognition, an epic relay across Australia uh, to build even more support to recognise the first Australians in our constitution. When it comes to your part of the country, join in. Walk with us, ride with us, cycle with us, or whatever with us. And write, blog, tweet, Facebook, hold an event, talk to your local community and your family about the need to fix the gap in our constitution. Together all of us can make history. And what a story that will be to tell our children and grandchildren about the small role we all played to bring about a big movement in our nation's story. I'm personally excited about the change that lies and the, the chance to change the challenge that lies before us as a country. We will all need to work together to make it happen. And I hope that many here will be as bold as Charlie Perkins was and other University of Sydney students who went on the Freedom Rides throughout New South Wales to raise awareness about discrimination. University students have a role to play, a very important role to play in this whole movement. And so I urge you to get on board and make history with us all. Thank you. It's remarkable, Tom, that, that as you were talking to us, I just had these things in my head. I remembered Pastor Sir Douglas Nichols and his message mm -hmm. that you echoed about we don't want to walk alone, we want to walk together. I remember Charlie Perkins saying that there were 60,000 years of culture waiting for Australians, all they had to do was ask. You know, I remember Rob Riley and he said, when he said, you don't keep, um, you, you don't stop fighting for justice just because those around you don't like it, you keep fighting. And then we had a message of hope from you tonight that said, we might not have everything, but steps in a long journey towards our goal are good steps. Very, I think, important words and challenging words as we thought, think through this question of constitutional recognition. Our final speaker tonight is Associate Professor Sarah Madison from the University of New South Wales. Sarah is widely published as an Australian author and as an academic, and her role at the, she holds a role at the University of New South Wales as an Australian Research Council Future Fellow in the School of Social Sciences. Her fellowship project is a four-year comparative project exploring dialogue and reconciliation in South Africa, Northern Ireland, Guatemala and Australia. Her recent books include Black Politics, Inside the Complexity of Aboriginal Political Culture, 
which won the Australian Political Studies Association Henry Mayer Book Prize in 2009. She's written also The Beyond White Guilt, The Real Challenge to Black-White Relations in Australia, and co-edited the collection called Unsettling the Settler State, Creativity and Resistance in Indigenous Settler State Governance. Can you please join with me and welcome Associate Professor Sarah Nelson. everyone for coming out this evening. Thank you Donna for your generous welcome to your country. I add my respects uh, to Tom's and Shane's and, and thanking you for, for having me uh, on your country tonight. I'm very privileged to live and work on Gadigal country. Um, I'd also like to thank the organisers tonight, Reconciliation Australia and the New South Wales Reconciliation Council and uh, Sydney Ideas for hosting an event. We're going to see many, many more of these discussions uh, in coming months and years as we approach these very important questions. So my thanks also to, to Anne and to Tom for setting out both the complexities uh, in a legal sense associated with uh, the proposed changes to our constitution and for some of the really compelling reasons that Tom has outlined uh, that, that might cause us to pursue these questions seriously. Clearly there's a long road ahead of us if the proposed referendum is going to succeed. Uh, as I'm sure you're all aware Australians are notoriously conservative when it comes to changing our constitution. You all know the statistics. Eight out of 44 times we have said yes to a proposed change. So there's a long campaign ahead. Uh, we don't know how long. Uh, it was, of course, meant to be, these questions were meant to be put to us in this year's election and the decision was made, quite rightly I think, um, that, uh, and I think there is broad agreement around this, that until there is a reasonable chance of these questions succeeding when they're put to a referendum, we shouldn't go ahead. Certainly I'm aware that if a referendum goes ahead uh, without that support and if that referendum fails, uh, we won't have that opportunity again in my lifetime. So tonight I want us to think about what is at stake for us uh, when we think about Indigenous recognition. Tom's touched on, on some of these reasons, uh, but I want to pick up on the metaphor that Tom has already introduced to tonight's discussion. And I hope that this this metaphor, this idea of our constitution as a story is something that might help Australians to connect uh, with the questions that will be put to us when we do eventually face a referendum. So a constitution, dull as it is, and I'm sure Anne would disagree with me, uh, <coughs> is a story. It tells a story. In creating a nation's foundational legal framework, a constitution tells a story about the nation's past, its people, its political culture and its aspirations. It might tell a story of a rainbow nation like the South African Constitution or it might tell a story of a nation concerned with rights that we all hold to be self-evident as in the case of the United States. Unfortunately, one of the biggest problems with Australia's constitution, aside from the fact that it is a pretty dull read, uh, is that at least part of the story that it tells is a fiction. And while this fiction has um, had very troubling ramifications for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, tonight I also want to consider the ramifications for non-Indigenous Australians when we think about the proposed changes to the constitution that Anne has outlined. The Australian constitution, not literally, but the, the song beneath the words, if you like, 
relates the story of British colonisation followed by the triumphant unification of the colonies into one federated nation. Underlying this legal framework created in our constitution is a familiar narrative. Certainly it's the one that, sadly, I was taught at school. The narrative that allows us to make sense of the dry text in the constitution tells of Philip sailing the first fleet into what is now known as Sydney Harbour and acting as colonists around the world have done both before and since, while acknowledging in some limited capacity the presence of the first people of the ter territory he was invading, he did little to comprehend, accommodate or to negotiate with the original inhabitants of the land. Rather, he and those who followed him set about the task of building a new nation right over the top of the ones that were already here. The many hundreds of indigenous nations that existed on this territory prior to the arrival of the British were completely invisible to or at least were ignored by the invaders, beginning with a penal system and then agriculture, housing, commerce and industry. Eventually there followed the elaborate political apparatus of the British system, soon replicated in other colonies around, on other indigenous lands around the Australian continent. By the time of Federation in 1901, these systems were well developed and were brought together under a constitution that made only the briefest of mentions of the original, original inhabitants and then only in racist and anti-democratic terms. The rest of the story was simply ignored. In line with the dominant views of the time that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples should either be protected until they died out or assimilated into the mainstream population until they were invisible, the Australian Constitution simply ignored their place in the nation. They were afforded no recognition. Their story was not told. It was, and I think this is the crucial point, it was as if they were not here. And so this, I think, is the great wrong that these new proposals to reform our Constitution is intended to address. It is hoped that through constitutional recognition, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples will be written back into Australia's founding story in some important ways. And of course this cannot happen without the support of vast numbers of non-Indigenous Australians. For a referendum to pass the very high bar of a double majority, that is a majority of people in a majority of states, the vast majority of non-Indigenous Australians must support these proposed changes at the ballot box. But why should this matter to us? The easiest answer, of course, is that this is just the right thing to do. Recognising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in the Australian constitutions will go some way towards righting an historic wrong, a wrong that I think most of us at some level already understand. Most of us understand that white Australia was settled on land that did not belong to us. Deep in our hearts, most of us know that this is true. Australia was not conquered through war, nor were treaties signed with the original inhabitants. Rather, the British who arrived in 1788 advanced a deliberate and brutal program of violent dispossession that spread from Sydney Cove to all corners of the continent eventually inflicting trauma upon every single Indigenous man, woman and child with devastating effect. So there is shame in this history and there is guilt too, something that I've written about in the book that Shane mentioned, Beyond White Guilt. We have made various efforts over the years to deal with this guilt, 
through the successful referendum in 1967, although I have to say I was incredibly frustrated to hear SBS News last night again describe that as uh, giving Indigenous people citizenship. It didn't. They already had it. <laughs> through the formal reconciliation process in the 1990s, through the 2008 apology to the stolen generations and the many thousands of smaller actions by individuals, groups and communities that have attempted to understand and to address the wrongs of our past. So it's wrong to suggest that Australians don't care. I believe that we do. And I think that this care accounts for the overwhelming success of the refer referendum in 1967, when over 90% of Australians voted yes for Aborigines, as the somewhat simplistic slogan suggested. And I believe that this caring means that today we maintain a desire to reinscribe a moral presence for ourselves as a nation back into the world. And it will be a challenge, I think, for the Recognise campaign to tap into that desire. Research undertaken by Reconciliation Australia in their Reconciliation Barometer tells us that we do want change in this space. 87% of non-Indigenous Australians agree that the relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australia is important. But 93% of Indigenous people and 73% of the rest of us believe that we are prejudiced against each other. And only 12% of Indigenous people and 9% of the rest of us believe that we trust each other. This prejudice and lack of trust has been maintained over time because we, as a nation, have failed to deal with the underlying political structural problems that frame the Indigenous-non-Indigenous relationship. <coughs> Since colonisation, the dominant response to the original inhabitants of this country has ranged from hostility to fear and from curiosity to ambivalence, tempered at times by compassion and eventually governed by frustration. Governments have reflected these changes in public sentiment through policy that has in turn thought, sought to obliterate or assimilate Australia's Indigenous peoples. And almost without exception, Efforts to talk about the wrongs of our past have been shot down as not being in the national interest. But the proposed referendum allows us the opportunity to open up these questions once again. Meaningful structural reform through constitutional change would allow us to revisit the past, to revisit the moment that Philip sailed through the heads and to tell a different story about the nations that were already here. And this, I think, is a wonderful aspiration. But before I, I finish, uh, as Tom and Anne have also acknowledged, I don't see the proposed changes as any kind of panacea, either for the many social and economic hardships still endured by many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people or for the broader political relationship. I'm actually very sympathetic to those Indigenous critics of the proposed reforms who argue that recognising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in our current constitution will merely legitimise a fundamentally illegitimate document. Recognising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in the Constitution is not the same as a treaty and like many others I do believe that ultimately the Australian state must make treaties with the Indigenous peoples of this land if it is to resolve its settler colonial status in a truly just way. However, I also recognise the real politic of our current situation. Unlike critics of the proposed reforms, I do not think that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander recognition in the Constitution will take treaty talk off the table. In fact, I think and I hope that it will strengthen the case. But the real politic of Australia in 2013 means that treaty talk is just not a viable political option right now. 
and for as long as it is not, we will take a significant step in the right direction by at least retelling our founding story in a way that recognises the truth of our history. And I think there is much at stake for all of us in seeing these proposals succeed. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah, for some really quite provocative thoughts. I really... The, the point you make about building over the top of resonates with me because as part of a welcome to the university, I often draw people's attention to the challenge that many Australians think that Aboriginal people don't exist in Sydney. We're invisible. And yet, our tradition, they think our traditional culture is not here. It's not visible in Sydney. But then if people walk up George Street or if they walk down Botany Road, they're actually walking along tracks that Aboriginal people built tens of thousands of years ago. When the colony came here, they just took them over. They built on top of us without recognising us. So some really interesting challenges. And it builds, um, I think those comments build on some of Tom's views about the, the notion of how narrative, that the constitution is part of a narrative and how narrative is important because narrative informs debate. And it raises, I think, very, leads us very nicely into some challenges um, that Anne has raised about the, the how we've got to get the technical steps if we are to move forward right. So now is going to be an opportunity for you to ask questions of the panel. But before we get into that, can you please thank again our three panellists for <laughs> kick off a question I'll direct it first to Tom. Um, Tom, Henry Parks told representatives of the various <coughs> colonies at one of those conventions they had, it was in 1890, that kinship, community, shared goals and dreams unite Australia. What damage to the strength of our national unity, the quality of our kinship between peoples and the communion of our dreams and goals as a nation would the failure of a referendum on constitutional recognition cause us? What harm to our kinship, unity, goals and dreams would be caused? Thanks, Shane. Um, look, I think, you know, what's, what's important um, uh, to remember is that while Park said that, it wasn't about Aboriginal people, it was about his own community, the community he was with, and, and they're very... It's very easy for people to recognise the need for, for community, um, be it within a religious order, be it within um, a, a township and, and people getting on together, be it the unity that might exist um, in a council. Uh, for, for the society to be able to progress and to thrive, you need unity. Unfortunately, that wasn't about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. We have very close kinship ties. We have very close unity that stretched right across the nation. When you're looking at all the, the dreaming, the, the interrelationships in marriages, the very complex uh, marriage arrangements in some, some areas, that was totally not even considered in, in these discussions. Um, we believe that, that they are important and we believe that there's much that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and society have that can be shared uh, with, with the general population. So I support the notion of, of unity. I think that it now needs to be an inclusive unity 
that, um, that pays that respect and an understanding of what Aboriginal trusted Islander kinship relations are about, what uh, a unified society. It's not always to say, though, that um, all Aboriginal trusted Islander people are a homogenous society. We're not, um, and that's for sure. Uh, we're societies within societies. But, um, you know, I, I was asked the question um, today, a bit earlier today, about the impacts it'll have uh, something like constitutional recognition might have on the mental health and social emotional well-being of Aboriginal trusted on the people and 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 I said the same effects that it had on Vietnam veterans you know, when they returned and they were excluded uh, from from marching in the Anzac marches and it was many years before they were included and that inclusion like the apology creates a very cathartic effect on people to feel part of a society and I think that's the type of, of uh, outcomes we'll see. But the, the recognition um, you know, in the Constitution uh, for us is paramount and, uh, and addressing some of the other issues uh, you know, that, that Anne had talked about, the expert panel had, had talked about, uh, are all part of a, a big bundle. But it's a, an interesting challenge and, and uh, part of what the expert panel said was also that we shouldn't progress until we know for sure that that uh, that was going to succeed and so there's a whole range of different ingredients to do that and in part it is why we have uh, the act of recognition that was passed in the parliament in march this year was to be able to give people the opportunity to to have that dialogue over the next couple of years a sunset clause of two years to to better understand how all of these issues can can have a have an impact on us as a society Questions from the audience, sorry, up the back. We have a roving mic, so the gentleman at the back first. Will the Constitution deal with the issue that's currently going on in Western Australia, Northwestern Australia, where there's a dispute between uh, the land and the use of that land? The reason I'm asking that question is if it doesn't deal with that, how are you going to protect those historical areas, such as that area up there, and, and no doubt there are other areas like that, from economic uh, development, or some people would call exploitation? The recommendations of the expert panel are directed at uh, the power to be given to the Commonwealth Parliament uh, and the Commonwealth Parliament does have relevant powers already to deal with things like um, the protection of sacred sites. Um, it also has powers in relation to trading corporations, so they have powers to make laws in relation to miners and people doing things. So it, it's not so much an issue of constitutional power, it's more an issue of the will of politicians to make laws. Um, and, and that's a completely different matter. That's the sort of thing you can't dictate from your constitution. You can give power in your constitution, but when it comes to making laws, uh, and making decisions about what's right for Australia, then that comes back to, to politicians and parliaments. Thank you. Sorry, this gentleman down here. Okay. Uh, thank you for a, for a wonderful talk. Uh, all of you, when you talked about the changes to the constitution, to be addressed in the referenda. You talked about a section uh, this and a section that. Now, my question is, how about changing or putting something in the preamble, uh, which I think is very crucial. 
uh, to recognize the, 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 the existence of the Aboriginal culture before the European uh, settlers came in. Uh, should that not be in the referendum as well? That's my question. Yeah, this one I'll take because it's actually quite complicated and I'll try not to bore people. Um, but basically it's, it's a structural issue. So here's the constitution, right? Unfortunately, our constitution is section nine of a British Act of Parliament. So here's the British Act of Parliament. It's got a preamble and it talks about the people of New South Wales, etc., etc., joining... In fact, by the way, Western Australia isn't recognised in the constitution in, in the preamble, so we, we might need a campaign for Western Australia. But anyway, New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, Queensland and Tasmania, humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God, agreed to unite in one indissoluble federal commonwealth under the Crown. Right? Then we get to section 9 and it says the constitution of the Commonwealth shall be as follows. So here's the actual constitution. And guess what? Our very exciting constitution starts with a table of contents. Okay. So when we talk about recognising Aboriginal people in the preamble, there's a real dilemma there. We, we could recognise them in the preamble to the British Act of Parliament, but that just seems a bit weird. I mean, Aboriginal people want to be recognised in the Constitution itself, not in the British Act of Parliament. And to rewrite the historical part of the British Act of Parliament would also be just, frankly, weird. Um, so then that leads you to the question, OK, well, we could put in a preamble, like maybe before the table of contents, um, and, and that was an issue that you know, was raised back at the Republic um, referendum back in 1999, but the problem is as soon as you open up that, it's not just about recognising Aboriginal people, but it then opens up Pandora's box of everybody else who wants something in there, from you know, Don Bradman's batting score to mateship and you know, immigration and war veterans, and you just have a huge debate that would get out of control. Now, what I thought was most clever about the expert panel's report is that they managed to avoid that. Um, and the way they did that, I thought was really skillful, is they put a preamble onto the front of the provision that gives the power to make laws with respect to Aboriginal people. So it's a preamble to a particular section. So it can just relate to Aboriginal people. It doesn't bring in that huge fight about everything else. So I thought that was brilliant. And I have to say, my fault for not reading out what the preamble was, because I just didn't have enough time. But basically, this is what it says. It says, recognising that the continent and its islands, now known as Australian, Australia, were first occupied by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, acknowledging the continuing relationship of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples with their traditional lands and waters, respecting the continuing cultures, languages and heritage of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, and then the controversial one, acknowledging the need to secure the advancement of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, and it goes on. So those other three bits I think are fantastic. Uh, my only concern was the one about the advancement bit, uh, but the rest of it can happily sit in there as a preamble to a section in the Constitution without opening Pandora's box of everything else. So I think that's very clever. I think the expert panel did a really good job on that. And it goes on to say that uh, English is still seen as the, the, the native tongue of, of Australia. Um, I just want to add, I mean, I agree with, with Anne completely that in the context of this referendum and the questions that are going to be put with regard specifically to Indigenous recognition, um, the expert panel's recommendations were, were very clever and avoided that question. I don't think that we should completely um, ignore for all time the question of whether we should have 
some kind of aspirational preamble to our constitution. Um, I was reading the South African constitution the other day. They, of course, completely started from scratch and, and wrote a new constitution um, over several years that, that um, ushered in their, their newly democratic government in 1994. And it's an incredibly powerful few lines of text that talk, uh, talks about what South Africa aspires to be and become as a nation. Now, I mean, they're a long way from achieving those aspirations. So clearly, um, this, we, we can't look to our constitution or a preamble to a constitution to, to, uh, to solve these complex social and, and political problems. But having spent quite a lot of time in South Africa uh, last year as part of my fellowship research, it's also clear that South Africans look to that document as a guide, as an aspiration, uh, on a regular basis. It's talked about, it's part of their political discourse uh, and, and that's partly because it is so aspirational. It talks about uh, justice for, for past wrongs. It, it, it talks about reconciliation and I think it would be no bad thing at all if at some future time we did consider whether we would like our constitutional story to be a tad more interesting and aspirational. Mm -hmm. So would that only happen if Australia became a republic or...? That would certainly be the ideal time. <laughs> uh, w one referendum at a time. Uh, this gentleman and I think the gentleman over here. Uh, yeah, this is directed towards you, Sarah. I was interested in, as you were talking about your research into different constitutions, whether the general trend is that their purposive power—sorry, purposive powers or personal powers—like is is it generally really like in, encompassed in the preamble, or is it the recognition in a more purposive sense of? Um You're asking me a constitutional law question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not a lawyer. Um, I mean, the, the South Africa is an unusual case in that it, you know, it's, a, it's an entirely modern constitution and, and because of their particular history, they did have the chance to draw a line and, and start again. Northern Ireland, certainly not in that case. Um, Guatemala, very complex and, and messy situation still. Um, I can't speak to... I don't even know what those different types of law are, but... Uh, you know, I think that the points that, I mean, I found Anne's talk very instructional about the difference between a person's powers and, and purposive powers. Uh, and I think that, and I may be wrong, perhaps the preamble is more the place for these references to, to peoples and, and in an aspirational sense. Um, but maybe Anne can speak more. Um, yep, happy to do so. Uh, yeah, look, if, if what you're including in your constitution is something that is, is a story, is aspirational, the, the better place to put it is a preamble. Um, you, you're right. Um, our constitution, I have to say, doesn't have much of a story in it. Um, as I read you, the, the only preamble we've got is the beginning of the British Act of Parliament and it doesn't tell us a lot. I mean, it doesn't even tell us that Western Australia um, came in because I have to say it was written before Western Australia agreed to join up to Federation. That's why they're missing. Um, although, you know, one suspects it also gives them a bit of encouragement to try and get out with secession as well. Um, so yes, if we're talking aspiration, if we're talking sort of giving a, a national a narrative, if we're trying to use our constitution as, as education, as instruction, as inspiration, uh, that's where you look for it in the preamble. I have to say the first time I ever read the constitution when I was, was when I was in school in year nine and I felt that maybe I should be sufficiently responsible and see what's in it and I borrowed it from the school library and I read it and I have to say I was terribly disappointed. It's um, extremely 
extremely, um, it, it's a nuts and bolts document. It's just telling you how you set up parliaments and what the rules are. It doesn't give you any of that narrative that you expect, having heard about you know, the United States Constitution and others. So it's a, it's a non-romantic constitution, I have to say. But um, having said that, you know, the nuts and bolts stuff works reasonably well, so we can't complain too much. Yeah, the Canadian stuff is, is complicated um, by a number of things, particularly the, the Quebec aspect as well. Um, so that feeds in with the Indigenous aspects and the language aspects are really big issues in, in Canada. And it's also affected by the fact that they have a Charter of Rights that we don't have, so they have constitutionalised rights. So it's actually quite hard to make comparisons um, in... Yeah, well, we also have sort of um, repatriated our constitution through the 1986 Australia Act, but what we didn't do, interestingly, back at the 1999 referendum, which we could have done, would have been to repeal what's known as the preamble and the covering clauses, which is the, the British Act of Parliament part, and re-enact the constitution as a sovereign act of Australia. Uh, look, if we're doing the Republic thing again, I think that would be really important uh, to have the entire constitution reenacted as an act of sovereignty of the Australian people. And if we did that, that would also encompass um, Aboriginal people as well because they would be part of the sovereign act of reenacting the constitution and, and that's you know, a powerful thing too. Thank you. Uh, the first speaker. The original constitution that uh, brought about the Federation in Australia, uh, Bob Hawke made a big, uh, not a very big noise, political noise in Australia. I'm going over to bring back the original constitution that federated Australia in 1901. Now, he came back to Australia with a copy because it's the property of the British government, the original constitution. Came back here with a copy. Never, I never saw anything in the papers regarding an act, regarding the Australia Act, as you just mentioned there, which was passed, which was adopted of the, of the constitution through that copy. So Australia could adopt it and then along came the Constitutional Act passed by the Australian Government. Now, what you've read there and the preamble is still a continuity of that 1901 Federation. Now, you just spoke again, if a Republic, you want to see that same Constitution. Now, what's the situation here in Australia today is that all these, all, all uh, non-Aborigines who take part in this referendum during the election will be still voting for a constitution that is still back in England. I can't make it out, even though the political decision of the Australian government here is would be a big con to the to the Australians here. Whereas the other speaker there spoke about given the backside to what it, what, it, what it made in South Africa and made up their own constitution, why cannot 
non-Aborigines get here and maybe have a coup d'etat <laughs> politically, politically and change and, and get rid of that constitution there, get rid of the Constitutional Act in Australia and if they're going to prove themselves overseas with other countries then this country will remain the worst country because remember there's only 15% of the world population are Anglos, are British. Even the London, even the London situation, people have been, English have been told to get out of London because the, the majority of people there are foreigners. And that's what will happen to Sydney and 15% of the population with Anglo-Saxon Anglos in it, Canada and America, New Zealand, Australia and England. So, the, the, I'll put it so the, the, the constitution, with that constitution, it's a, it's a big con by Hawke who brought back a copy of it. How can a, a copy be presented to the Australian Parliament and people who voted here for a democracy? I don't vote. I only vote in Aboriginal organisations that I'm in. I don't do any federal voting, state or local government uh, voting. But I think the New South Wales preamble would outplay even, the, even that there, as you're aware. It says ownership by Aborigines. Ownership was owned, the, 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 the land in New South Wales was owned by Aborigines. So, Uncle, and I might, the I might get this. Yes. I might get but, the panel but to But that's respond. the best preamble that was brought about it here for economic, for economic value, but the land's all, uh, at least, when, when, when uh, the Uricala case, ruled against it, we were, we were still flora and fauna and Justice Brennan in the opening of the Marbo situation said we're not here to find out how we, how we came about Australia, we're here to find out about what was in international waters up there in the Marbo case. They weren't even in the county of Torres Strait. So, you know, the situation is that all this field good by politicians towards non-Aborigines who don't understand even their own constitution. So, Uncle, I might get the panel so, to respond. Yeah, I so can explain the, that a little one bit. One at a time each, sure. perhaps? Uh, just the, the technical side of it. Um, in, in terms of, you know, do we have the power, is the power in Australian hands to get rid of the British Act of Parliament to, to re-enact or enact a different constitution? Um, the answer is yes, uh, and that arose from the Australia Acts of 1986. So the one thing, one of the most important things about the Australia Acts of 1986 is that they returned into Australian hands power over all Australian constitutional documents, including this constitution and the other constitutional documents, which are the Statute of Westminster and the Australia Acts. And Section 15 of the Australia Acts um, allows the parliaments, both the Commonwealth and the states together, to um, use various mechanisms to get into that British Act of Parliament and repeal it uh, so that the constitution itself can either continue as a constitution or we could enact a new one. So the, since 1986 the power has been completely in Australian hands to do that. So Bob Hawke might have turned up with a copy of the constitution from England but the really important thing was the Australia Acts in 1986 
which ensure that Australians have the power in their hands to control their constitution in the future, and that's the critical thing. Tom, hang on, hang on a minute. Can we just can we let the other speakers, if they wanted to make a comment, um, Sarah or Tom, did you want to say something? Just to say, the issue I raised is why we all need to get behind constitutional change and and this referendum, because politicians won't make a move unless they know they've got support uh, behind it. Um, and, and we can only show that support by the population mobilising and getting behind it to give them that confidence. And it's no different to what, what went on at the, uh, the time of the Republican debate, whether that re-emerges um, in the near future or distant future, uh, we've yet to see. But it's important that we all get informed and we can make uh, an active uh, action to be involved in, in, um, in this referendum as with all referenda. Sarah, did you? I think the important point for me and to, to pick up on the point about Canada and also to, to bring the, the US in, when we talk about changing the constitution, we're not just talking about changing the law, although clearly it's a legal document. We're talking about changing the political context in which we live. Now in Canada where um, Indigenous peoples um, have some limited recognition in the Constitution or in the US where there is some uh, limited treaty uh, arrangements between uh, some, not all, native nations and uh, the US federal government. Regardless of the, the limited legal powers that those uh, provisions afford, they have provided for Indigenous peoples in the US and the Canada a far more supportive political context in which those nations have been able to um, exercise a form of negotiation in the US described as nation to, a nation-to-nation -nation relationship with uh, the US federal government that has just been denied to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in Australia, fundamentally denied. Now, uh, the, the provisions that are on the table with this referendum won't um, automatically open up that space. They won't, um, we're not talking about writing into the constitution an agreement making power. That was one of the provisions that the panel considered and ultimately rejected. I think primarily because it was felt that it wouldn't succeed and that, you know, I think that's um, true but very disappointing. Nonetheless, even the, the more limited form of recognition that is being proposed here does change, would change the political context, would provide, I think, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples with a different legal and political footing from which to be advancing their political claims. It's not the end of the story. I don't, I don't necessarily think that we need to completely throw out our constitution and start again in order to take a step forward. I think that these provisions... They did. It was a very different context. We are very lucky in this country that we have not endured decades of civil war uh, in, the, in, in recent times and I'm not discrediting for one minute the hundred years of war that, that went on as Aboriginal people defended their territory from the British invade, invading forces. I, I wholeheartedly acknowledge that. I think that's part of our history that we don't sufficiently acknowledge. In recent times, and at least partly because of our dull constitution, we have been blessed to live in a peaceful and stable country. 
So I don't see the need to throw it out and start again. I do see the need to keep pushing and pushing and pushing relentlessly to write into our founding document, to write into our laws, to eventually, I hope, write into other um, legal provisions and recognitions um, a different kind of status for Aboriginal First Nations people in their relationship with the broader Australian government. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with Tom that it's all about unity. I don't think that is the aspiration of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in Australia. I think there are some, uh, some who absolutely, uh, some groups and some individuals who want very much to be a part of the Australian nation and there are some who fundamentally don't, who would rather be left alone um, to live a, a traditional separate lifestyle under their own uh, laws and government. I would like to see us um, evolve as a nation to the point where um, Aboriginal nations who want to do that, who want to govern themselves, can do that. I don't think it's beyond us. Other nations do it. I think we are limited in our aspirations right now. But this is a step and it's a really important step that would change the political context and allow us to start contemplating these questions differently in the future. Thank you. We've got two, time for two more questions or maybe three. Lady at the back, thank you. Oh, sorry. I'll try and keep this short and maybe you can just take it as a comment if we're pressed for time. Um, thank you so much for the informed and passionate discussion. Um, as a student and an activist, I'm really ready to get behind this um, as a form of progress. But what I don't understand is how we can speak about constitutional recognition for Indigenous people without addressing the political context that we're in, which is one of the suspension of the Anti-Discrimination Act to achieve the same means that we apologised for um, when Kevin Rudd became Prime Minister. We've got the Northern Territory intervention and the Stronger Futures legislation that have been passed recently um, saying, sorry, Mayev has obviously created a lot of healing within the community, but what it hasn't stopped is the government doing it again. So I would like to, yeah, just ask how we can have this discussion without bringing up these things and if perhaps the speakers would like to comment on that. Either of the three? Well, you know, I think it's, it's important, even, even if there are changes to the Constitution, you know, that's not going to be the panacea for all, all of um, the situation with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And, you know, you need a lot of political will, a lot of interest uh, to be able to do it because the Constitution will, will offer some protections if they're being challenged, but that doesn't mean that politicians will, will direct funding and so forth uh, to any, any specific initiative. And, and the politicians knew that they were going to offend the Racial Discrimination Act and, and the International Covenant on, on uh, Eradication of All Forms of Racial Discrimination. They made that choice. Um, they took it upon themselves to do it. And you know, there's a, uh, a lot I wrote about in the 2007 Social Justice Report that that identifies you know, where it was going to offend and why it was offending, but um, they had that at their disposal, but they chose not to. There's, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, this lady here, thank you. Thank you for a very informative uh, night. And I'm just wanting to ask, uh, what do you think the sticking points or the things that might trip us up are in this um, issue and what are some ideas, um, solutions you've already thought of for um, our campaigning? Well, I guess, uh, you know, we launched uh, uh, on Sunday the, the Journey of Reconciliation or Journey of Recognition, which is about awareness raising and, uh, you know, at the moment we're enjoying a lot of uh, multi-party support 
um, you know, at the highest levels and, and generally within Parliament. It went through the, the lower house and the upper house, the act of recognition. So there is that, that, that sort of uh, support which is going to be essential. Um, as we go around, uh, we'll find that that support uh, hopefully will grow. We've already seen it grow in the last, the last year uh, as people become more informed. Uh, but, you know, there's always the, the, the counter prevailing attitudes of shock jocks and others who want to undermine it. Um, you know, I mentioned uh, what's important is that, that people like yourselves who get informed, um, you know, get out there and tweet and blog and, and, and get involved in this whole, whole discussion and, uh, and to recognise that this is a journey. It's not a little trip that we're going to uh, sort out next week. Um, you know, we've got at least two years until they, you know, the sunset clause comes in and that they have to make a decision as to whether we progress. So as it means we've all got to be vigilant and, and you know, support the groups, you know, like uh, the local, state and territory reconciliation action groups, the Close the Gap committees, the ANTARs. All of these bodies are working together, um, you know, and I think we can, we, we can change attitudes. Sorry, and our final question for this gentleman's attendance. Uh, let me thank the three speakers also and Shane for having us. And sadly, this gets back to you and the nuts and bolts. Uh, you spoke about the problem with having a person's power and the need for a proposal power being in relation to, I guess, the characteristics of that power defined as maybe racist. But isn't the bigger problem going to be that should we move to such a power, we're still defined by a grant to the Commonwealth which can be used to the detriment of individuals, even if we have a preambular statement which says for the advancement of, and there's a huge body of jurisdiction that says the advancement could be anything, including the, uh, the Northern Territory intervention. Yeah. Is the alternative then better phrased as a general power than other, pre uh, other power provisions which relate to the protection of equal rights and anti-discrimination to all persons? Yeah. Uh, so my, my suggestion was, uh, so as you say, a, a person's power is dangerous, it's very wide, there's all sorts of potential, and whether that preambular provision would manage to control it we just don't know, so you're just guessing. We have no knowledge of how the High Court will decide it. We know the sorts of principles they might use, but we just don't know. Um, the wording I had suggested, and I have to say, I, I, in um, saying that the expert panel's wording is not the be-all and the end-all, I also make the same claim for my own. Okay? So I'm sure that this can be improved by people. Uh, but my suggestion was in terms of making it a subject matter power to say that the Commonwealth had power to make laws with respect to native title and the protection and support of Indigenous heritage and culture. And what I wanted in those words, protection and support, were positive things. Um, so that in itself is going to limit the power. It couldn't be a power for the destruction of Aboriginal heritage. It, couldn't be, it wouldn't be a power for um, you know, um, undermining um, cultural heritage. Uh, it would be for protection and support. Um, so that's one way of putting positive things in there but that act as limits on the power. Uh, and, and also power to make laws with respect to native title, which is, I think, important. And you can do that without having to rely on some kind of preambular thing that may or may not work. Uh, that's my suggestion. It's a starting point, but I think we need to, to um, have a discussion about it and see, can we come up with a better form of words? I'm more than happy if somebody can. I really am. Yeah. I, I guess the, the issue that native title isn't the be-all, end-all. Um, and, and whilst the, the burden of proof is on 
Aboriginal trusted on the people, uh, we're not going to be able to get the outcomes from native title that we should. And as Chief Justice French um, is promoting that, uh, as, as are many others, that the burden of proof needs to shift to the government to be able to prove that Aboriginal trusted on the people didn't uh, or have broken continuity because it's all about who meets the threshold of, of the Native Title Act. So that was the first comment. The second is that uh, when we talk about advancement, um, a lot of the discussion came out of, of um, the, the United Nations um, Convention on the Eradication of All Forms of Racial Discrimination and there's provision in there for what we call special measures. And that's also been reflected through the Racial Discrimination Act in Australia. And that's about, a special measure is about uh, achieving equality and equality of outcomes. And, and it's very much time bound and, and it's about being able to be uh, positively discriminating to be able to achieve um, you know, a, a just end. And that just end is equality of, of outcomes, be it in health, be it in, in education or whatever. So uh, the, the government are very aware of that and, and they chose not to, or they chose to apply um, their own interpretation of special measures in relation to the Northern Territory, but there is a process, and Gahadi Brown, I think, was the, the case that, that looked at it in Australia, um, uh, and, and it's about consultation and engagement with the people who are going to be affected. They need to be party of a special measure. It's not up to government to say, we're going to do this because we think it's in your interest. And whilst that interpretation is about the whole issue about advancement uh, becomes clouded. But I think if we go back and look at, at uh, what at the international level we're talking about in relation to, to advancement or achieving equality, then, then um, that will give us much more guidance. Tonight has shown that this is a subject that will generate a whole range of ideas and opinions and views, as it should. And it also shows that we should be engaging in a discussion as citizens and as individuals around these complex questions. This event tonight was co-presented by the New South Wales Reconciliation Council, Sydney Ideas at the University of Sydney and Reconciliation Australia as part of the 2013 Reconciliation Week. If you'd like to continue this conversation, there are some resources at the back of the room on the table. By all means, help yourself and start a conversation not just in meetings like this, but over dinner tables, in shops, on buses, on trains, but start a conversation with people about these questions. I think that's where we will start to see some clarity. And one final thing, I suppose, is that, that the New South Wales Reconciliation Council would like to give you another opportunity to have your say on this broad issue, and that's that box pop that I mentioned out in the lobby here in the um, Sydney Law School. So on your way out, if you want to share a final thought, please take the opportunity um, to do that. Um, I'd like to thank you all for taking the time to come out and join us tonight. Please give yourselves a round of applause for being so energetic and engaged in this conversation. And can you please thank a panel who have demonstrated such passion and commitment and bravery to come and broach such a wide range of subjects. Thank you all for coming. Good night.